Here's, here's a hot take for all your listeners. I have never had a discipline of a quiet time. And I think that there are some of us who have been so bound by that to think that we're failing if we don't have 15 or 20 minutes every day. And I think that there's even a whole culture that's grown up around it that is a little bit like Christian karma, where if you don't do that, the Lord is going to zap you. And I think I have enough of that word faith background in me to go, Mm-mm, that's not right. The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Hello and welcome to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales and you've joined us for The Profile where we sit down with a different Christian each and every week to find out something of their life, faith and testimony. And I'm pleased to say I'm recording on location today. I've come all the way to Texas to meet Jen Wilkin. She is an author and Bible teacher and we're recording this inside the village church just outside of Dallas. Jen has organised and led studies for women in home church and parachurch contexts. She's an advocate for Bible literacy and her passion is to see others become articulate and committed followers of Christ with a clear understanding of why they believe what they believe. She's the author of a number of books including None Like Him, In His Image and Ten Words to Live By. Jen, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming all this way. I know. It's my first time in Texas, and <laughs> it's great to be here. You are born and bred in America, is that right? I am. That's right. Tell me a bit about life growing up. I was actually born in Alabama, but at this point, I've been here since I was three years old in Texas, so I think I need to claim that I am, in fact, a Texan, and was raised in Texas and thought maybe eventually I would leave and never did, and I'm pretty happy about it. Um, I grew up in a town in North Texas. Uh, met my husband when I was in college, uh, and we lived in Houston for about 13 years and then made our way up to the Dallas area to live closer to family about 15 years ago. It was the best decision we ever could have made. And um, have just my whole adult life have taught uh, women's Bible studies, whether it was in my living room or in a community setting or uh, in my local church, which is my happy place is to just be serving in the local church. Um, five kids. Jeff and I have been married for almost 30 years, and he is great. Wow. So, mm-hmm. so tell me a bit about um, uh, life growing up in terms of faith. Was it was it a Christian Christian upbringing? I actually was raised in a in a single parent home. My parents divorced when I was about eight years old, and my mother was a person of deep faith. Um, she was someone who got drawn into um, the word faith movement as mm-hmm. I was growing up. And before that sort of developed, she was um, the sort of the quintessential odd person out in the local church as a single woman in the church. She didn't really fit in the in the typical Sunday school setting or the graded age graded and ministry um, category uh, broken up setting. And so we moved from church to church. And when I was a child, because she just kind of never fit in, uh, which actually has developed in me a real heart for that particular kind of woman in the church, whether she's single or divorced or widowed or functionally single because she's married to an unbelieving spouse. But um, she ended up in the Word Faith Movement at some point after um, we had bounced around in a number of different denominations. And just for those who haven't come across that before, can you give us a rough definition of what Word Faith, uh, what that kind of is or what it teaches? Yeah, basically that whole name it and claim it thing where your words have a supernatural power to determine the course of your life. And so um, it's the kind of thing like don't speak your fears aloud because it gives them power. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you claim I want this in Jesus' name, then the Lord is obligated to to act because you've used the right combination of words. I'm oversimplifying things a little bit. Uh, And also, uh, you know, a a lot tied to just, you know, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you can expect that you will be wealthy and that you will not suffer any physical um, illnesses because um, the Lord will keep you from those. And so my mom had a chronic illness uh, and was in a in a belief system that basically said if you have an illness that doesn't go away, then you are in sin or you lack faith. So it was, when I talk about false teaching having very real consequences in our lives, I don't mean in an abstract way. I mean in a very tangible way. Um, so as a result of being in a bunch of different kinds of churches where there was always someone standing behind a pulpit holding the same book, but not always saying the same thing, 
I came into adulthood with a real hunger for having a firsthand knowledge of our sacred text um, so that I could discern the difference between a verse that was used in context, one that was used out of context. And so for your own kind of personal journey of your your mum believing this and you presumably at some point understanding that wasn't right so how, how mm-hmm. did how did that happen mm-hmm. um i think that the older i got the more i saw the um the back edge of that kind of a belief system uh, i saw her go through cycles of saying i've been healed and then realizing that in fact that had not happened and having to deal with the the grief and the the sense of failure um and i began to move into more um Uh, for lack of a better word, orthodox circles of the theological uh, training and just could see the distance between the two. Um, When I was in my early 20s, I had a cancer diagnosis. And my mother, when I called to tell her about the report, she said, "Um, don't say that out loud. That didn't happen. And I said, I'm holding the pathology report in my hands. And she said, we're not going to give that any power. And so uh, that began to show me just, gosh, there's got to be a better way. Yeah. Uh, and, and then just getting into really good Bible studies that were going line by line through books of the Bible from start to finish and beginning to realize how often verses were being cherry picked and given to us in a sort of a selection to paint a particular picture of a doctrine. Um, I began to grow in, in my convictions around uh, the teachings of that particular um, movement. And did your mom ever come out of that? To some degree, she did, yes. We were able, as she got older, we were able to have good conversations about um, what was right and what, what was the right impulse behind perhaps a wrong expression. And uh, I love my mom. She is, the, she is the faith influence on my life. She is the reason that I am a believer. You know, she, she was the, the parent who, who brought that into our home. Mm. Um, and yeah. in her latter years, we were able to talk through um, some of the things that were not as um, helpful. Uh, and, you know, she loved the scriptures. And she was, in fact, if you saw her door, she passed away in January. If you saw the door of her apartment in her senior living facility, it says Bible Thursdays, 2 p.m. Like she was still teaching the Bible even into her uh, last months. And so um, she was definitely the spiritual influence on me. And I, it, I, it cautions me to think if my mother was so avid in, in her study of the scriptures and could have missed something like this, which was definitely tied to autobiographical reasons. There were reasons she was drawn to that doctrine. Then I and anyone else have things that are part of my own story that will pull me toward one doctrine or another that may not be something to do with what the scriptures are actually teaching. It's really fascinating to, to hear that. And I often ask people, kind of how has your faith changed over time? And I suppose yeah. that's one really interesting example of mm-hmm. a particular doctrine you were brought up with that as mm-hmm. time went on you think that's that's not right. Was I right in reading that you were part of seven different church seven, denominations? Seven, yes. That's quite yes. impressive. That's yeah. a, <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm struggling to name seven denominations, let alone be a part of seven different ones. Yes, well, I think I will not name them for the purposes of this broadcast, <laughs> but it's definitely that. And uh, yeah, and, and that's um, all part of you trying to figure out. It, it was really just following my mom around from right. church to church, and then also spending time in the church that my dad was a part of, and then um, my entire family up until my mother and father had been Catholic, so uh, spent a fair amount of time in Catholic spaces as well. So just kind of a, a mutt, uh, a denominational mutt, so to speak, uh, by the time I hit, hit young adulthood. But in a, I mean, I, I think it actually has given a, an interesting vantage point because I will say that what was true across denominations, and you know, one of them actually was non-denominational, so maybe I can't count that in the, in the whole number, but um, was that biblical illiteracy is not limited to one denomination it is uh, it 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 tra- it it transcends those categories um, and one of the things that was particularly fascinating to me was I think one of the critiques of the Catholic Church would certainly be that the priest was put between the people and the scriptures 
he was supposed to mediate the scriptures for them, but that in Protestant denominations, here we are, um, you know, however many years removed from the Reformation, and we actually find ourselves in not that different of a space very often, where you have a perceived expert who stands behind the pulpit, who communicates the scriptural truths to the amateurs who sit in the seats, and um, that division is believed to be a good and necessary thing, that the people in the seats couldn't possibly um, be capable of navigating the scriptures with tools. Therefore, we need that mediator. And it, it strikes me so often how very Catholic that can be um, and uh, is fascinating to me. And so I, I feel like the, the issue of Bible literacy is, is relevant to us no matter where we find our, whatever context we find ourselves in. All of us need uh, better access to the scriptures. Let's talk a bit about where we are right now yeah. in the village church. So just explain what, what denomination this is, how you found yourself here, and what kind of a church it is. We are um, a Southern Baptist church, but you probably wouldn't know it unless you did some digging around. Uh, I would say that we it, we would be more characterized as non-denominational in our feel, um, with a high emphasis on uh, on knowing uh, doctrine and knowing the scriptures, and um, you know a wealth of preaching. Um, and we are in the suburbs, and um, so we are. We're the the people that we minister to um, are just sort of middle of the road, uh, not necessarily extremely highly educated, not necessarily um, poorly educated, uh, people with all of the average concerns of daily life. And I've often wondered why the Lord called me to ministry in the suburbs, because sometimes it feels like it's not particularly dramatic when you look at it from the outside. But, you know, what we find is that everyone is dealing with the same the same challenges, deep loss, um, things that they're covering that they don't want anyone to know, uh, a sense of inadequacy around matters of the faith. Um, you know, materialism is something that we're, we're always dealing with here and affluence, suburban affluence and those kinds of things. Uh, but that um, the underlying roots of all of these things are the same everywhere. So mm -hmm. there's always good ministry to be done. And how many people will be here on a Sunday? Um, between two services, we have about 3,000 that can actually fit, um, but we have space concerns associated with that, which okay. I know sounds like a great problem to have, but it's just really not. <laughs> <laughs> 3,000. Uh -huh. uh, we have, I think we have about 4,500 who, who would um, say that this is where their membership so is. So in, in British terms, yeah. this is a mega church. Well, I in, think even in American terms, yeah. But mm -hmm. in American terms, it's, it's a large church, but mm -hmm. it's not as large as some American churches. Well, it's not as large as it has been either. Really? Um, we okay. actually, our pastor has jokingly said that we have been the fastest shrinking megachurch in the United States. We, um, several years ago, had a multi-site approach to what we were doing and at one point would have numbered our attendance somewhere around 12,000. Wow. But we made a concerted decision that we were going to become truly local and have successfully rolled off all of those campuses into autonomous churches. And so now we are just a local campus here in Flower Mound. Yeah, and that's a big change, isn't it? To, to go from, from presumably one location to multi-site and then to mm -hmm. make the sites, as you say, autonomous and, and kind of bring it back to one site. Mm -hmm. What were some of the reasons behind that shift? Um, there are churches that are great at multi-site, and I, we, we would not say that philosophically we're opposed to that, but we would say that for our purposes and according to where our strengths and weaknesses lay in terms of being a staff and, um, and what we cared about, uh, that we would rather, uh, and we, we, we never set out to be multi-site, it sort of just happened, it was sort of this natural progression. So um, we have a very strong church planting ethos here at the village. And so it occurred to us that perhaps the best path forward for us would be to have what has turned out to be a fairly labor intensive and, um, and just heavy investment um, version of church planting. And so we were more than happy to set up uh, healthy functioning churches in local communities, even though at the outset we may not have had that in view. You said you're a, a Southern Baptist church, but you wouldn't necessarily know that, mm -hmm. um, which is an interesting comment because, as I understand it, Southern Baptist is the largest, it is. largest denomination mm -hmm. in America, mm -hmm. but of course we don't really have a reference point for that in the UK. So mm -hmm. can you help us understand what the denomination stands for, but also why you say 
if I came along on a Sunday, I may not realize it is Southern mm-hmm. Baptist. Can mm-hmm. you help us understand that? Well, it's an old denomination, uh, but the Village Church is not very old. We are about, uh, let's see, I think we're coming up on 20 years. Um, but at the time that our pastor came here, we were a, it was a Southern Baptist church that, that, um, that he came in and became the pastor of. And so we kept that affiliation because um, there are a lot of, things to be said for being a part of something that's larger than your local church. And in the case of the um, SBC, uh, like all large old organizations, it has its baggage, and that is a genuine thing. And it, right now, as I understand, oh, yeah. there's an in the investigation into is it uh, yes. sexual abuse within yes. the denomination, which mm-hmm. is obviously very serious. I mean, it strikes mm-hmm. me that it wasn't that long ago um, I, I noticed evangelicals would make some fairly disparaging comments about the Catholic Church and their right. abuse scandal. And of right. course, now we look at it and we look, right. well, as far as I can tell, there's scandal across every denomination. Right. No one's immune from it. Yeah, that's right. And, and, uh, and you know, I, I feel it's terrible to watch it play out, but I'm also, I think we all feel thankful. We, no one wants things to be hidden in the darkness. And um, so, yeah, it, it was time. I'm sure it was past time, you know, for, for this to happen for, for, the, for a denomination of our size. Uh, and I think that, you know, like like most churches who are a part of the SBC, we're, we are always evaluating what we want our relationship to be. It is not like a, the ecclesiology is, is different than like the Presbyterian Church or the Anglican Church. Um, the local church is autonomous, and so that means that you can... Be a contrib- you can contribute to things like the cooperative fund th- through the SBC, but you aren't ascribing to um, a whole um, a whole downline of of management, so to speak. And so, I think the local autonomy piece is something that most people are not aware of. Um, and so, whatever systems may be broken within the denomination as a whole, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're broken at the local church level. Um, but obviously, we're always thinking about what affiliations we want to have. Um, but you know, it, it's hard to know what to do. I, I know that it's popular to walk away from institutions these days, and I don't feel 100% comfortable with that. So um, I would. Well, I think it's worth evaluating on a regular basis. I think it's also something to, to, to handle in a in a in a measured way. So, what does the average day look like for you at the moment? Um, well, we are getting into the fall, which means I'll be he- heading into a teaching cycle again, and so we are in the midst of training small group leaders and training our teaching team to be ready for the Bible study spaces. Uh, I'm also responsible for our next gen, uh, so all of our students and children's ministry here at the church, and also um, our family ministry. So all of that is ramping up. So I'm spending a lot of time in meetings uh, <laughs> at that time of year. And um, also putting together some teachings that I'll be doing for things outside of my role here at the village. Um, I, 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 I do some things through, you know, my publishers. Um, most of it to do with anything that I'm doing outside of my local church is an overflow of the work that I have done in the local church. And I really wouldn't want it to be any other way. So we have found some mechanisms for helping get uh, good equipping tools into the hands of lay people, in my case specifically women, that's just what I care about the most. Uh, and so I'm working on some things with my publisher to make sure that we have good access to doctrinal mm-hmm. training and to Bible literacy tools. Yeah, And as you say, you know, your books are very well read, of course, by Christian women. But I have spoken to Christian men who have read yes, your books. Yes, yes, a few who and, have been and, brave enough. Yes, and yes. the comment, the comment they often, uh, I've often heard said is, Jen Wilkins' books are brilliant. Don't be put off, men, by the <laughs> by the flowery cover. <laughs> yeah, I've had mixed feelings about you know at the time that I came into Christian publishing, which was completely unexpected. I always say that the unexpected child of my middle age has been my books. I just I didn't know that was going to happen. But at the time that I was stepping into Christian publishing, um, you really wouldn't have stepped in as a woman writing to a mixed audience. It just really was not a thing, not in conservative Christian circles. And that's where I've been. I'm in theologically conservative spaces. And not only that, but personally, I, I don't feel any regret about having a, a female audience. Do I think that I'm saying things that are relevant for both men and women? Absolutely. And then I think you can tell, even if you've, I mean, men do my Bible studies too. I'm not writing 
questions directed specifically at women so much as we're just doing Bible study with a, with a female teacher, which is important because women need to see themselves, you know, they need to see a woman who is able to uh, divide the scriptures with, with sober-mindedness and care because otherwise they perceive it to only be the work of, of men. And so I look at the publishing situation and I think, well, what if I had written people of the word instead of women of the word back <laughs> in 2014, I guess it was? And uh, I tend to think that neither women nor men would have picked it up. Right. Uh, and so I feel grateful that women did pick it up and they picked it up in numbers. Like mm. I, I thought maybe I could make my family purchase some copies, you know, <laughs> when, when I wrote that book. So that feels really gratifying, but it's a, it's a book about Bible literacy. And yeah. so we always joke, if you put a little piece of tape over the W-O in women, it becomes men of the word and you're all set. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite book that you've written? Yeah, I... Um, when I was first approached by a publisher out of the blue and asked if I had a book in my heart, that was exactly what they said. The first thing that, I, that came to mind was what became None Like Him. Um, I wanted to write on the incommunicable attributes of God because I had read so many beautiful things written on them, um, A.W. Tozier, Arthur Pink, um, Stephen Charnock, um, that, that brought to life for me aspects of God's character that no one had invited me to meditate on in all of my years in the church. But what I didn't see in those books, uh, my apologies to all of those fabulous authors, was I didn't see how, um, how the human heart took those and said, I want these to be mine. Like the understanding that when Eve sees the fruit, what the the, the strange thing that the serpent says to her, it doesn't hit us as, as, as being strange. The serpent says, he knows that on the day that you eat of it, you will become like him. Well, that's weird because that's Genesis 3. And in Genesis 1, 26, we were told that she's already like him. And so that means that whatever is being posed to her in Genesis 3 is a way of being like God that she's not designed for. And the incommunicable attributes of God show us the things that are true about him that are not true of us, never will be true of us. And so then you look at things like your iPhone. It's promising you omniscience. That's what it's promising you. That's why you love it. That's why you're addicted to it. And um, that's not what you're built for. So it was exploring those actual practical applications of the incommunicable attributes. That's what I feel like. That's the book I was supposed to write. Do you have a particular writing process? Do you go find a cabin in the woods and lock yourself away for a few weeks? How, how does it work? Uh, I have never had a life that gave me the opportunity to take a writer's retreat. I hear people talk me neither. about that. I'm still waiting. Yeah. If anyone wants to offer me something. Yeah, no. What I do is I try to have a regular rhythm. So I have a day a week that I set aside what's supposed to be for thinking and reading and potentially writing. And I know that 9 a.m. is the best time for me to start to do any writing. But sometimes those those days are just filled with self-loathing and inadequacy <laughs> and stress eating and wandering around mumbling in a bathrobe. Uh, but I'm learning that that's all part of the process. And I just have to give, you have to give a lot of time, you know, for things to take shape. I've had, I have, while I have not had the luxury of a writer's retreat, I have had the luxury of, um, many, many teaching spaces. And so the things that I have written have been things that I've taught a lot before they found their way into book form. So I think that's a, a big piece of the process for me is just taking what I know uh, is not just true, but sticky in a, in a learning sense, you know, something that has stuck with the people that I've had the privilege to teach, and then um, more or less um, doing the work of archiving that teaching into a book form. You're listening to The Profile. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm speaking to the Bible teacher, Jen Wilkin. Before we hear the rest of my conversation recorded at her church in Dallas, Texas, I want to let you know that this program is brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine. That's Premier 
Christianity. And we've got a fantastic offer for you. If you're enjoying this interview, you're sure to love Premier Christianity. Lots more great interviews with leading Christian thinkers, plus reviews of the latest Christian books and more. Top columnists, including Jeff Lucas and Ren Collective's Chris Llewellyn. So why not get your hands on the latest issue? In fact, we'll send you the next three print magazines direct through your door for just £5. The next three issues for just £5. A limited offer, not long left. So grab it now while you can at premierchristianity.com. That's premierchristianity.com to get the next three issues of the UK's leading Christian magazine for just £5. Time now to rejoin my conversation with the author, Jen Wilkin. Let's listen in. I wanted to talk a bit about uh, 10 Words to Live By. Yes. Partly because my wife is reading it as okay, we speak. Okay, all right. With a friend and they're meeting up every week and oh, chatting it through lovely. and getting a lot out of it. So um, it's based on the Ten Commandments, yes. 10 Words to Live By. Yes. But you start out with this thought that I really want to unpack with you. And that is Christianity isn't about following rules. It's about relationships. Mm-hmm. So it's a phrase, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you've probably heard something yeah. like that phrase. You know, it's, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Mm-hmm. And you start with that idea and you unpick it. So what, what is wrong with that? What is wrong with that idea that Christianity is not about rules, it's about relationship? Well, I think uh, one of the ways that I try to drive home this point is to pose a scenario for learners. And that is, imagine that on uh, Monday morning, you're going to be asked to be a substitute teacher in a, uh, here it would be kindergarten. And so you have, we, they need two subs. You can either be a substitute teacher in Mrs. Smith's class or Mrs. Jones's class. Uh, in Mrs. Smith's class, they don't actually call her Mrs. Smith. They just call her Susan. She just wants them to feel loved and seen and cared for. Uh, and uh, and she doesn't really have anything that she makes them do. She just wants to hug and, and, you know, and just have a lot of good quality time with them. So you could sub in Mrs. Smith's class or you could sub in Mrs. Jones's class. In Mrs. Jones's class, she has a list of things on the board that everyone's going to pay attention to. Things like... Um, Let's all talk one at a time. Uh, Let's not hit one another. Let's be respectful of one another's property. Uh, Which class would you want to substitute in? And, you know, everyone wants to be in Mrs. Jones's class. And what we recognize there, Mrs. Mrs. Smith is actually not a good teacher, right? Because she has prioritized relationship at the expense of rules. Mrs. Jones understands that rules are actually what enable right relationship. Uh, And we all know this, like the reason that I don't speed when I'm driving into work is, yeah, because I don't want to get a ticket for not speeding, but it's also because it's good not just for me, but for everyone. And so the nature of rules is they show us how to live in community with one another. They enable relationship. And so when we think about God's law, it's good for us to think about it in those terms. When we think about it just as something that he's wagging a finger and saying, you must obey, we've really missed the point. What he's doing is saying, this is the way the world works. Do you know why? Because I created the world to work this way. And so we become a part of his way of living when we are obedient to his law. It's a fascinating subject to discuss because I, I think there's been many different ideas and teachings on, on rules and grace and how we understand these ideas biblically. Yes. And it is, is what you're saying perhaps a bit of a reaction to a movement that would say, well, you know, you come to Christ, everything's mm-hmm. forgiven, don't worry, mm-hmm. uh, you're fine, there's grace. And it's, it can be... Um, it can perhaps run the risk of trivializing sin or, as you say, not emphasizing that actually God has given us guidelines for a reason. Right. That's right. Well, I think most of us, uh, I actually have a theory on why we've gotten to where we are. I tend to think it's related to Bible literacy because we don't have a sense of, uh, if you think about like the typical sermon series, it's, it's, it is it is um, constrained by calendar realities. And so um, that means that most of us are only exposed to portions of the Bible that fit into small increments of time. That means a lot of us have spent a great deal of time in Paul's epistles. And we have not spent a lot of time in some of the longer books of the Bible. And so when you think about Paul's emphasis on grace, it's understandable to me why we've perhaps gotten a little out of balance on our understanding of how grace relates to law, even the way that he talks about law and grace uh, based on who he's addressing in his epistles. And so we find ourselves in in a time where people actually believe that law and grace are oppositional. 
law is bad, grace is good, right? In fact, they would say law, Old Testament, grace, New Testament. Um, but that rubs the wrong way against the doctrine of the immutability of God. God does not change. Therefore, we don't understand his character to have changed from being, you know, thunderous Mount Sinai God to snuggly Abba Daddy God in the New Testament. So then we have to understand how to reconcile those things. And actually, Jesus gives us a lot of help with this, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, I didn't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill it. And so he gives us positional righteousness uh, through his death, burial, and resurrection. When God looks at us, he sees holiness because of Christ. Um, but anyone who receives positional righteousness will necessarily then live out a practical righteousness. And that's what God's law helps us to do. It was a burden that hung over us. And then in the finished work of Christ, it becomes, as Jesus would say, the narrow path that's beneath our feet, pointing us to what's pleasing to God. And we delight to do his will and to meditate on it day and night. So that's a little of a taste of 10 words to live by. What's coming next? Or are you still in that phase of wandering around the kitchen? (laughs) Mumbling. Thinking, what am I going to do? Yeah, I'm not currently working on a book. Um, My current work demands have made writing a book something that's not on my radar for the in the near term. Uh, But I am working on a Bible study. Um, I'm always churning out some some Bible study. Um, First, second and third John is actually about to release in January. And then I am hard at work on, of all things, a Bible study over the book of Revelation. Wow. What could go wrong? That's a challenge. Yes. That's a challenge right Uh there. Okay. Uh Well, we look forward to seeing that. How would you describe your calling? I imagine it might have something to do with biblical literacy. Absolutely. Um, I think it's a couple of things. I think it, the, the Bible literacy thing is, is huge for me, um, obviously based on my, my autobiographical um, leanings. Um, it, it has been such an important piece of my own understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower. And then specifically Bible literacy among women, because uh, at least at the point that I was coming into leadership in the church, and I would say um, even it endures until now, although I think it crosses gender lines, unfortunately, uh, women uh, were under-resourced. They were overlooked in Christian publishing when it came to 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 resources that were geared at the thought level. There were a lot of things that were geared at the feelings level for women. And it was almost as though the messaging was, women are supposed to emote and men are supposed to think. And um, that's, we're all called to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so there was a strong uh, current of anti-intellectualism that was present in the American church, certainly um, in the 90s and early 2000s at the point that I started um, teaching in earnest. And the idea that if you were developing your mind, you would you would have to become a Pharisee because that's what happens. Like if you, if you feed your thought <laughs> life, uh, you know, and there was no recognition that what a Pharisee was, was someone who had right information and wrong motive or right information, but was not a believer. Like, I think we missed that. Like Pharisees were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so what happens if you actually develop your mind with the Spirit indwelling you, doing the work of sanctification, through that, um, women women were not being given that. We were supposed to rely heavily on our story. Uh, we were supposed to um, do devotional material. We were supposed to do topical studies that told us how to be a better wife or mother or how to deal with our anxiety. And consequently, women in, in particular uh, did not have a sense of context or of just reading a book from start to finish. Everything was cherry picked. Everything was curated, and we were being formed by that. Mm. We were being formed into a particular kind of Christ follower, and I would argue it was one that did not have a lot of shock absorbers for the uh, cultural shifts that were headed our way. Mm. Yes, and it's interesting what you say that about the kind of stereotype of Christian women feel and yeah. Christian men think. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was speaking to someone just the other day about this, and the very complex and fraught conversation around the transgender issue and, yeah. and he was saying he, he wonders if we as Christians haven't done ourselves any favours because often the church has perpetuated stereotypes about right. well boys play with cars and girls play with dresses and, and actually saying we've, we've even tried to sometimes justify those things biblically where actually no, if you've got a girl who wants to play with a yeah. car, that's fine. It's really fine. <laughs> and but, but I thought wow that's, that's quite a challenging thought that the church might have 
not helped this this conversation when there's gender confusion because we've been guilty of perpetuating stereotypes in the past. Yeah, absolutely. This is a little tiny rant that I have that we probably don't have time for. But I do think in our attempts to defend distinction between men and women, we we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. We or we overemphasize something um, because if you think about. Uh, what is playing out in Genesis chapter 2. What has happened, I think, is that in the church, we absorbed a message that was actually cultural, and it was men are from Mars, women are from Venus. But what Genesis 2 shows us is that both the man and the woman are from the same garden, created by the same God, charged with the same cultural mandate, um, and and same equal recipients of grace. You know, all of these things are there. And when, when Adam sees Eve in Genesis chapter 2, he does not say, she's amazing, she's, we have nothing in common. He's just seen a parade of animals go by so that he can know without a doubt that one's not like me, not like me, not like me, not like me. So that when the woman is presented to him, his first thought is, this one's like me. And I think that in conservative theological circles, we thought that if we said anything about sameness, then we were giving up on on differentiation, which is absolutely not true. Because the first word in scripture is that we have more in common than divides us which means that you and i sam have more in common than i share with a female cat my femaleness is not my defining factor yeah it is my humanness but when men and women are told that we are mutually exclusive categories uh, as is the case with any time that difference is emphasized the first thing that happens is objectification and competition instead of partnership and collaboration which is what we were created for have you ever doubted your faith? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that I hope, I hope that people can grow more comfortable with. I've gone through periods of years where I've thought, I don't know. And then you come out of it on the other side. And I think that's what I would love for younger Christians to know is doubt is not a sign of failure. Doubt is a natural part of a long life of, uh, of faith. And it's not something that you need to feel panicked over um, <clears throat> in the same way that we take a long view of all elements of discipleship. Give yourself a long view and know that you probably would not meet a, a saint who is over the age of 60 who cannot point to one or more extended periods of doubt, uh, but you come to the other side of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are those at the moment, I'm thinking particularly younger people in both our nations, mm-hmm. growing up in Christian families and mm-hmm. experienced doubt. Mm-hmm. And that then leads actually to a kind of the, the popular word at the moment is deconstruction, deconstruction right. which a lot mm-hmm. of people will talk about. But the, the point mm-hmm. being that, that you're right. I mean, I'm sure every Christian can identify, yes, I've had periods of doubts, I've come yeah. through it. But some people have periods of doubts and they do end up walking away. Mm-hmm. And we seem to be seeing this in, in yes. greater numbers. Yeah. Any ideas why? Well, I think doubt is a sign that you're still thinking critically about things, and um, many many of us receive the messaging that thinking critically about our faith was actually antagonistic to our faith. Um, I think the other piece that many of us are missing is that we have a historic faith, and so when doubt hits us, we uh, and let's combine that with rugged individualism uh, and how individualism has crept into so many aspects of the church you know the idea that we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ being that that's the most important thing you can know about your faith Um, but there's no such thing as a personal relationship with Jesus Christ any relationship with Jesus Christ implies a relationship with his church and so when you think of yourself as being saved into the community of the church and not just the community of the current day church but the church universal then that means that the likelihood that you're going to be confronted with a soul-sucking question that someone else has not already thought about and done some good thinking around is very low. But we're so locked into our own personal experience that we forget to raise our head up and say, has anybody thought about this before? And then to be to have an honest reading of things. You, sh- you should be allowed to read things that are different than what you were raised thinking. But you also need to be aware of when you can be drawn into a pattern of only reading those things and forgetting to balance them with things that have stood the test of time and borne the weight of centuries of belief that are speaking to what you might be reading um, that's outside of the tradition you were raised in. How does this play out in somewhere like Texas? Because I'm aware 
you know, I'm currently <laughs> visiting a nation where there is greater numbers of the population identifying with Christian. I mean, identify as a Christian. You can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but but my perception is the idea of an invite to, say, a women's Bible study is, right. is probably a bit of an easier ask in uh, Texas than it is in London. here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're not called the Bible Belt for no reason. <laughs> and, and that's... Um, so secularization is is happening in America, but what is happening slower here? I don't know. It's been picking up pace. I right. think you'd be proud of us. Right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think there's a lot of fear around it. There's a great deal of fear, and I think I, I wonder: do people think that 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 God's church shrinks? Is that what they think? Uh, because I think what we're seeing is we're we're seeing the actual size of, of the of, of the church and. That's right. Okay. This is what people have called the the death of nominalism. That's the, right. The, the idea that there's a lot of cultural Christians who are now no longer identifying as That's cultural right. Christians because it doesn't really. They don't need to effectively. It's that's no right. longer the kind of cool thing to do, if I could put it that way. Yeah, that's right. And so on the one hand, um, I think it is something we need to pay attention to. But on the other hand, the people who are committed are committed in a way that I have not seen. Uh, in my earlier years in the church when to be a Christian was something you would put on your business card because you were proud of it. And now when there's a social penalty for it, it changes everything. And I think it changes things in a healthy way for all of us. Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favor right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. Do you have any spiritual when people use different language, do you have any spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices on a daily or a weekly basis that are really helping you? And I, I ask this question, I get all sorts of different answers. Some people say I'm really discover, rediscovering the importance of Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Other people say it's a it's a kind of old school Bible quiet time at 8am. Other people mm-hmm. say oh, I actually struggle with that, but if I go for a walk or I go for a run, I connect mm-hmm. with God. How, what helps you to connect with God on a day-to-day basis? Um, walking helps me a lot. Uh, and being in uh, being in nature, like it sounds trite, but I'm a gardener and I'm a gardener for a reason. I think I'm drawn to it because it helps me remember what transcends and what I do control and what I don't control. I'm always filled with metaphors when I am in my yard poking around and that feels important. Uh, I am not a I am not a person who, oh, I guess we're all disciplined about the things that we care about. Uh, but I would not describe myself as someone who has a lot of disciplined rhythms. My husband is very much like that. Uh, I am a person who, he'll, I, I devote hours and hours to Bible study, but I don't know that it's in a, in a, in a ritual way. It's uh, more that I understand that I have to know I'm going to stand up in front of a room full of people who are going to want to know that I did the work. Uh, and so, like, I always joke, like, some of you, your level of accountability you need to stay in the scriptures is you need to know that you're going to show up at a small group. I have to know there's a whole room of women staring at me, wondering what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, and so that that is motivating to me yeah. um, and also just my own desire, yeah. you know, to, to grow in my understanding and thereby my love of God. Um, I think I could be way better about having a structured approach to prayer, frankly. I think that's a weak spot for me. I, I tend to have a very organic uh, approach to it, which is not awful, but I hear about people who keep prayer journals, and I think that makes a lot of sense. But uh, I am I'm not generally someone who I've I've learned uh, after many years of lack of self awareness that I lean more toward the creative than I do toward the what's the opposite of that someone who's very um, yeah uh, scheduled and structured. Mm. Um, I didn't even realize that writing was a was a creative act in the way that painting or mm. or, um, or making music is until I was a little far along in the process. So I try to give myself grace for having a particular way of thinking about things and doing things. Mm. But no, I've never. Here's here's a hot take for all your listeners. I have never had a discipline of a quiet time, um, and I think that there are some of us who have been so bound by that to think that we're failing if we don't have 15 or 20 minutes every day. And I think that there's even a whole culture that's grown up around it that is a little bit like Christian karma, where if you don't do that, the Lord is going to zap you or your day is going to be terrible because you didn't do that and Jesus got up early in the morning. And I think I have enough of that word faith background in me to go, "Mm -mm, that's not right. That's not right. Um, But it is a valuable process for people 
who um, benefit from it. I don't think we have to say across the board that that's the way we should all handle things. I think there are seasons of life in which it's really hard if you're a young mom and you're like, I am trying to have a quiet time and there's no such thing as quiet. Uh, and I think too, if you're at a if you're at a deficit in your understanding of the scriptures and you know you've got some ground to make up, honestly, a discipline of 15 minutes a day is not going to enable you to um, encounter a large swath of scripture the way that twice a week for an hour and a half might. You know, so uh, I think self-diagnosing a little mm-hmm. uh, and and having some self-awareness around what are your own strengths and weaknesses and personality tendencies. I think a lot of people will find that really helpful and, and, and liberating, Take, takes the pressure off. And as you say, I think a lot of Christians do live under this kind of constant guilt trip of I'm, it probably doesn't help when we read the great spiritual biographies of people who yeah. spend, you know, <laughs> four hours in prayer before breakfast and I read that and just think, well, that's completely uh, unreachable. unreachable. Uh-huh. And then uh-huh. I feel guilty and think, mm-hmm. well, I'm never going to do great things for God because mm-hmm. I don't get up and pray for right. four hours every morning. Right. It's very easy to fall into that trap, isn't it? I think you have to just, you have to ask, the question you have to ask yourself is, am I drawn to the scriptures? Like, am I, do, what, get to the motive level and then uh, have a practice that is an expression of a right motive. Like, have a practice. But the, the idea that we would all have the same practice mm-hmm. seems um, a little tough to me. This summer, it's all about three. Get three months summer subscription to Premier Christianity, the UK's leading Christian magazine. Three months of unlimited daily opinions and articles online. Three printed magazines delivered directly to your door. Three digital magazines on your device so you can read on the go. And all for just £5. That's right, just £5 for a three-month subscription only at premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. So I wanted to talk about, you mentioned it already, family, family and next gen. That's yeah. your job title here yeah. at the Village Church. Because I know you've got many thoughts on this, on how churches can better engage with families and young people. I'll give you one example. I've heard it said quite often in church circles amongst Christian women that, oh yes, when you've got babies, when you're a young mother, when you've got young children, you've got babies, church is just a bit of a write-off. Um, <laughs> you know, you can't engage in the worship, your kids are running around, you, mm-hmm. you know, you can't leave your baby in, in the creche because they'll cry. And and there's this kind of almost conversation, I've seen it going on it, amongst, amongst Christian women, where they just sort of say to each other, yeah, it's, it's just a season of life for the first three or four years, you won't really get anything out of church, but you know, after that you'll be all right again. <laughs> I know you have some strong views on that attitude and perhaps some strong views on how when church leaders pick up that culture, the onus is on them to try and change it. Yeah, well, I do think it's an absolute gift when a church has a way to watch small children. Uh, But I also do think in the American church in particular, what we have unfortunately seen is the mentality that your children are supposed to be somewhere else while you, that, 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 uh, quote, big church is really, it's for adults. And, um, and that's certainly not true. One of the things that we've always done, the Wilkin family, is we always had the, the kids with us in, in the service as soon as they had the, the self-control to be there. So um, for us, that was around age five is when there was a natural transition point to begin bringing them into the service. And so the question then is like, well, they're not going to understand the sermon or they don't know what's going on. And, and that's really not the point. Uh, and the point is also not that you as a parent would have a flawless experience of worship. Like the experience piece, I think, is what drives us so often. And we forget that corporate worship is every bit as much about formation as it is about you having, you know, a, a tingle in your stomach about the the worship music. And so um, when you think about children in a children's church space. Now, I will say straight up, my husband leads in that space. I value it. I love it. Obviously, it's part of my job now to care about that space. Um, and so this is not to diminish at all what happen, what happens in children's environments. But if a child is being introduced to corporate worship when they're um, 12 years old, that's too late. That's, that's too late. A child's moral development is set by age 11. That's what they'll tell you developmentally, by age 11. And so if you don't introduce a child to what it looks like to be a member of the church um, until they're uh, at that age, then you've missed out on a huge formative opportunity. And the value for them is not in being able to write down all three sermon points and articulate them to you later. It's that they saw their parents 
worshiping. It's that they understood that they were a part of something bigger than their own family or them individually. Again, putting that emphasis on it's not about your personal relationship. It's not not about it, but it's about your relationship with Christ and his church. Yeah. So how do you think church leaders can can get better when it comes to children's ministry and have and encourage that more holistic approach, I suppose? Well, there was an interesting study that um, Lifeway um, did several years ago that talked about the reasons that children stay in the church into adulthood. Hmm. And there were a number of things on the list that you would expect. It was things like they listened, they were exposed to Christian music, or they went on a mission trip, or they had a place to serve in the local church. And those are all things that are very important for us to pay attention to. But the number one reason that a child stayed in church into adulthood and didn't decrease construct or you know or, or or just leave because they weren't sure what the purpose was was that they were taught the Bible and not just taught the Bible but taught how to read the Bible so of course my little Bible literacy heart just <laughs> comes alive when I hear this because I think it it has to raise the question with us how are we thinking toward that how are we thinking toward so um, you know one of the things that we do here at our church is we begin teaching kids skills of how to actually turn and find things in their own copy of the Bible uh, as soon as we can we have them doing memory verses you know with, that are set to music anything that helps them to realize this book is accessible to me and then I have tools that I can read this on my own and then I can come and talk about it with other people and between all of us we can learn what's true about the Lord and we can be built up in our faith together. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think a lot of times children's programming is either thought of as a place where we keep them entertained and filled with snacks until mom and dad come to get them, or we cherry pick Bible stories, right, Um, that we all know. Um, You know, you can't talk about Rahab. There are certain ones you can't bring up, but (laughs) give them all the standards. So another thing that we've done here that I love to help increase Bible literacy is we teach children the 40 events of Scripture. Uh, 40 major events and they're set to song so that they can have a pic- an, an understanding of the whole story of scripture uh, by the time they're in early elementary. But anything like that that is helping children have access to this book that, P.S. everybody, we're staking our lives on. One of the amazing things about scripture that often strikes me is how you can do that. You can do memory verses with children yes. and it'll be really meaningful. And then you can also release your Bible study on Revelation for adults. Yes. And, you know, and it's everything in between. That's right. In terms of the simplicity of the gospel that even a child can understand it, but also the incredible depth and riches when you do the hard work and get the textbooks out. That's right. That's and right. For you, your life kind of crosses that whole spectrum, I suppose, in various ways. And you don't want children to come into adulthood never having been taught critical thinking skills about their faith. I I believe that's a major driver in the deconstruction that we're seeing now, is that we didn't give people that. We gave them information, uh, but we didn't give them thinking skills. And so when a child knows that it's safe to ask the question that they think is soul-sucking, and when you as a parent or a, a church leader feel safe to say, I'm not really sure. Let's see what we can find out. And you communicate to them that even adults don't have all the answers, but it's not a reason to panic. We have good um, shock absorbers that are part of an ancient faith. And so let's just go find out together. I think that's a major gift that we can give to the next generation. Well, Jen Wilkins, sadly we're out of time, but it's been wonderful to chat. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.